This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the May 26th episode of Global Nashville with Carl Dean. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thanks for joining us. Today, Carl will be talking with Dr. James Hildreth on the topic, Nashville and the COVID-19 pandemic. You'll find a complete bio for Dr. Hildreth on our website, tnwac.org. But let me share with you some of his extraordinary achievements, keeping in mind he's still a young man. James E.K. Hildreth, PhD, MD, is the 12th president and chief executive officer of Meharry Medical College, the nation's largest private independent historically black academic health sciences center. A native of Camden, Arkansas, Dr. Hildreth began his undergraduate studies in 1975 at Harvard University and was selected as the first African-American Rhodes Scholar from Arkansas in 1978. Among his achievements, graduated from Harvard magna cum laude in chemistry in 1979, enrolled at Oxford University in England graduating with a PhD in immunology in 1982. Attended John Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, taking a one-year leave of absence from medical school for a postdoctoral fellowship in pharmacology. Obtained his MD from Johns Hopkins. Became the first African-American in the 125-year history of John Hopkins School of Medicine to earn full professorship with tenure in the basic sciences became director of the NIH-funded Center for AIDS Health Disparities Research at Meharry Medical College, elected to the Institute of Medicine, part of the National Academy of Sciences, the most prestigious biomedical and health policy advisory group in the U.S., became dean of the College of Biological Sciences at University of California, Davis, the first African-American dean in the university. Dr. Hildreth serves on the following boards, the Nashville Health Governing Board, General Board of Higher Education and Ministry, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences, and the Nashville Healthcare Council. Dr. Hildreth is married to Phyllis Drennan King Hildreth. They are the parents of Sophia, a captain and attorney in the US Army, and James, a recent graduate of the University of Oregon. And we take it as a truism that the family of a service member is in the service too. You may have recently seen Dr. Hildreth on the national COVID press conferences with Mayor Cooper or appearing as an expert on cable news shows. We're pleased to have him here this evening to talk about Nashville and the COVID pandemic. Mayor Dean. Thank you, Pat. And doctor, it's uh, great to see you again. And uh, thank you so much for taking time to, to be with us. Carl, thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be with you. Good. Well, you have an incredible resume. Um, and as Pat says, you're still a young man, and who knows where you, what you add to it. But could you just give the listeners and the viewers a um, an idea how you ended up here in Nashville? Which I mean, we're so happy you're here, and it's great for our city, and it's great for Meharry. But how'd you get here? So, uh, Pat, my story actually story of my life in medicine began when I was 11 years old. Uh, we lived in a small town in Arkansas, and my father got sick uh, from cancer, and uh, 
honestly, because we were poor and black, he didn't get a lot of medical care. So he died in January of 1968. And in that same year, in April of 1968, as you know, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And so I was a really confused, angry young man, but my mother worked with me and convinced me that rather than being angry to do something about it. So at age 13, I decided to go to medical school, even though I had no role models. So I started doing research on medical schools, how to become a doctor. And I found out that schools at that time were ranked according to your success in getting into medical school, depending on which university you went to. And the university that was head and shoulders above all the rest, at the time at least, was Harvard. So my life's work became, at age 13, getting into Harvard University. So I did everything I could do to make myself attractive to Harvard. And I got in, uh, I, I went there with a name of going to medical school, coming back to Arkansas to help with the healthcare system. And here's the thing, back then there were 75 counties in Arkansas and 90% of the doctors were found in two of those counties, Hot Springs and Little Rock. And the rest of the state was, was really lacking in, in health professionals. So my plan was to go out, get trained, come back, and try to do something about that. Um, one of my colleagues at Harvard convinced me to apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. He used my elder uh, brother, Bill Clinton, as an example. So I tried for that. I got the Rhodes Scholarship, came back to uh, Johns Hopkins, fell in love with research. And quite honestly, by the time I did all that, Bill Clinton had become governor and really addressed some of the things that I had a mind to address. But I fell in love with uh, immunology and I was gonna become a transplant surgeon. But the very first patient I took care of as a medical student was a young African-American woman who had just given birth to a baby and she and the baby were both HIV positive. And at the time, Carl, all we could do was watch them pass away, there was not much we could do for them. So I decided to change my career path and decided to devote my career to uh, HIV research. And honestly, uh, I rose to become one of the few African-Americans in HIV research uh, who was published and successful. And so Meharry Medical College got a grant from NIH to establish an HIV research center but it was a two-part grant. The first part was a planning grant. The second part was a big grant of $10 million or more. The big grant would only come if they found a director with the appropriate stature to lead the, to lead the center. And Meharry being Meharry, they wanted an African-American leader. They reached out to me. The first two times I said no, because I enjoyed my career at Johns Hopkins very much. Uh, but my wife convinced me to come have a look and I fell in love with the place and uh, decided to come to Meharry be the founding director of the HIV Center. So that's a long way of saying that for someone whose interest in medicine started out in a health disparity situation, it really was profound disparity. For me to be leading an institution whose goal it is to get rid of those disparities to me is, uh, is quite a journey and I'm really happy to be there. Well, we're happy you're here. And how have you liked Nashville? I think Nashville is a great city. Of course, it helps that we're one of the healthcare capitals, really, of the world. I have great colleagues at Vanderbilt uh, in research and in other areas. Uh, so it's great to have Vanderbilt as a partner. It's great to be in a city where healthcare is, uh, you know, is an emphasis. 
is a big business. Um, so I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, we made lots of good, great colleagues here. And I think the leadership in Nashville is uh, forward-looking, forward-thinking. And so I enjoy it. I think Phyllis and I both do enjoy it being here. Uh, and Meharry, of course, has such a unique and special history for Nashville, but also for the entire country. It's, it's had a very important role right. uh, as an African-American institution going back to 1876. And, right. uh, and, and, and so you've had, um, I guess, the honor of working with that and maintaining the institution. Um, how, how are things going? How, what's the future of the school? And, and what do you, um, so what do you I, think I, about these days? I'm, I'm, I'm uh, very optimistic about our future. Obviously, the pandemic has created some challenges for us, just like it has all the other uh, organizations in, in the world, really. Uh, we've had to change how we teach medicine, dentistry, and, and research to our students. We've had to adjust how we do our businesses as an organization. But uh, we graduated a great class this year of medical students and dental students and research students. Uh, this year, for example, we have five graduates of our dental school who are integrating for the first time five of the most prestigious dentistry res residency programs in the country. And some of these have never had an African-American ever. And it's 2020. And it seems odd to be saying that, but that just gives you an example of the quality of our students and the quality of our program. So I'm, I'm excited about our future. And I think that the pandemic just forces us to think about things in a new way and a different way. And, you know, I, I welcome the challenge and I'm excited by it. All right. And, and you'll um, have students and be open in the fall and take in a new class. Yes. And, I mean, I, Absolutely. How is the, uh, there was um, relationship with um, HCA, Health Corporation of America, to, in terms of residency for the students and to give training. How is, right. how is that going? It's going uh, very well. So uh, I think in 2017, we were able to announce a historic partnership with HCA to allow some of our students be to be trained at one of their hospitals here, Southern Hills. Uh, we started with 12 students, is now uh, greatly expanded. I don't know what the number is. We're also jointly starting some residency programs with them, which I'm really excited about. So that partnership has worked out really well. They offered to help us uh, with some of our student uh, clinical rotations. All across the country, when, when the pandemic occurred, medical schools found themselves bringing back their medical students out of the clinics. Uh, one of the reasons for that was to preserve PPE for the professionals taking care of COVID-19 patients. But the other was to prevent exposure of students to COVID-19. But our partners at ACA and other partners as well have been very helpful and gracious in helping us with that. So. It's been a great partnership. Uh, we've had a long-standing relationship with HCA. Uh, they've been on our board. They've had members of our board have been HCA leaders. Uh, we've had leaders on the Harris over the HCA board. So that's the long-standing relationship that's worked out really well for us. Good, good. And you're, given the situation the country's in, the world's in now with COVID-19, um, your background, particularly in working with HIV, HIV um, this is sort of what you do. Yes. Uh, and and so how, how, would you, how would you judge the way the United States has responded in Tennessee and then Nashville? Uh, well, starting locally, 
I'm really pleased that Mayor Cooper made the decision a lot earlier than some other cities did in the South to shut things down and ask us to stay home and practice social distancing. So I think Nashville has done really well. We have a 1% fatality rate. The number of people who've been hospitalized has been relatively low. And I think that's because the Nashville community responded really well to what they were asked to do. And so I think we can all be thankful for that. I'm also pleased that Governor Lee has made two decisions, I think, that are really important. Uh, he's decided to test all of the nursing homes in the state for COVID-19, as well as all the prisons. And those are two highly vulnerable populations. And given that we don't have a vaccine or a treatment, the only way to save lives is to identify where the virus is and to take steps to keep people protected. And I think that's what the, the governor's decision means. And I have been saying for several weeks, in fact, back since uh, February, that that should be the national strategy. We should, we should test every nursing home, assisted living facility, every prison in the country, because those are vulnerable populations. And it has elderly people there, people with underlying conditions, and we know that those people are more likely to, to uh, die from this. And so I think that that should be a national strategy. Uh, there's no doubting that we started late we should have started more earlier than we did, and that would have saved lives. It's been kind of chaotic. Uh, you know, a national strategy in which the governors, mayors, and others got some directions from, from FDA and from the CDC would have been very helpful. Uh, but I have to give kudos to many governors who have been strong leaders in this, and I think that because of their actions, we've saved lives and the country's better off because of that. But clearly, uh, it's been disorganized and somewhat chaotic. And that's not what you want in a crisis like this. Right. And so now as we speak in Nashville and really all over the country, all 50 states, we're going through the opening up process. Um, how do you see that unfolding and how comfortable are you with where we're at? Uh, well, part of our challenge, Carl, is that viruses especially this virus, that does, do not respect borders, whether you're talking about city borders, county borders, state borders, borders, even continental borders. So because of the unevenness of how we've responded to the crisis, it could mean that Nashville could have done a superb job of controlling COVID-19. But if the surrounding areas do, have not done that, as soon as people start moving back and forth, we'll find ourselves pretty much back where we started. And if you saw the pictures of the gatherings over the Memorial Day weekend, we know for sure that there are gonna be more outbreaks or clusters of outbreaks. And unless we do contact tracing, isolation and treatment, those clusters of outbreaks will turn into major outbreaks and we'll find ourselves having to shut things down again. So, so my concern is that if not everyone takes this as seriously as it needs to be taken, it's gonna impact all of us. Uh, for example, it's become obvious to me that wearing a mask has become politicized, which is a lot you wanna see. Right. Masks serve a very important purpose. They allow me to protect you from what I might have and for you to protect me from what you might have. And so when everyone's wearing the mask, it lowers the risk for the whole community. And uh, it's just a sign of respect and understanding of our situation. And so I'm bothered that that kind of politicization has happened 
in a health crisis, which is the last thing we need. What have you, what do you take from your experience um, with HIV and this particular situation? I mean, what are, what are the similarities and, and... So one of the striking similarities, Carl, is that you might recall this, that in 1981, the summer of 1981, in medical journals, there were reports of young white gay men coming down with infections that you should never see in a young healthy And there was a clear indication that their immune systems were failing. And it turned out it was an infectious disease and it was given the name gay-related immunodeficiency syndrome or GRID. And because of the social construct at the time and the stigma associated with being homosexual, the resources needed to mount up a response to HIV and AIDS was not forthcoming. So we got late, we had a late start in fighting HIV because of the stigma associated with being homosexual and the misperception at the time that the virus was limited to gay men. That was never the case, even from the beginning. Heterosexuals were getting infected, black were getting infected, Hispanic whites. So that was a huge blow to fighting the virus, having this, these misperceptions. Likewise with COVID-19, as you know, the rumor got started that if you're young, you didn't have anything to worry about, that the virus was not gonna be uh, a challenge for you or, or harm you. What we now know is that if you are a child, as, as young as two years old, you might get severe disease. If you're in your 40s, you might get strokes from blood clots caused by the virus. And, and sort of as a counter to that, we know about people who are over 100 years old who got infected and who lived. So in the same way that some of the misperceptions hampered the public health fight against HIV, some of those same kinds of misperceptions have hampered the response to COVID-19. And still to this day, the thinking among some young people that they don't have to worry about this is a challenge because they might get infected, have limited symptoms, but take the virus home to their grandparents or elderly relatives who will not do so well. And so that is why it's so very important that everyone understands that by protecting ourselves, we're actually protecting people that we love who might not do so well with this virus. And so I think that's one of the strong parallels between HIV and COVID-19, the ability of misperceptions and misinformation to hamper our efforts to, 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 to fight the virus. Um, I also think that there's a parallel in the sense that at first, the fight against HIV was an effort to lower the risk for the whole population. It's a population-based approach to, to fighting HIV. Once we understood clearly how the virus was transmitted and the populations most at risk, we took a more targeted approach. We, we focused on those people who are most vulnerable, who are most at risk of getting infected and getting disease. We should do the same thing now with COVID-19. Now that we understand that the elderly, people in prisons and minority communities are most vulnerable to severe disease and death. We should pivot and change our focus to a targeted approach on those most vulnerable populations because that's how we save as many lives as possible by doing so. I'm not saying that the general approach should be abandoned, but there should now be a focused approach on those populations that are most vulnerable, like we did with HIV.
So with this particular uh, situation, there has been apparently an enormous worldwide effort. Everybody um, who has a lab or the ability to look <laughs> yeah. at pharmaceuticals is trying to de develop a, a vaccination, a vaccine for this. And I guess in the last week, the news has been relatively positive that there's some exciting things happen in various spots. Yes. Um, how do you feel? What's your sense of that? Do you think we'll have a vaccine by the end of the year? Uh, Carl, I think it's unlikely that we'll have a vaccine by the end of the year. There are going to, certainly going to be some candidates identified by the end of the year, some of them very promising. But in terms of having a proven vaccine that could be distributed to hundreds of millions of people, um, I don't think, I'm not convinced that that's going to happen. I'm very encouraged by the fact that vaccines are normally developed in stages. There's a preclinical preclinical stage in which we learned as much as we can about the virus and the biology of the virus and the immune response to the virus. And based on that knowledge, we identify candidates for the vaccine. Uh, that process has been greatly compressed because of new technologies that we have available to us, including supercomputers. So we've, we've compressed the preclinical stage for sure. And now what's happening is the resources have been made available to run some of the major uh, stages of development in parallel. Normally there's a phase one trial, a phase two trial, and a phase three trial. We have a situation now where some of the major drug companies in support, supported by NIH are running some of those phases in parallel. That you're actually doing these phases in a way that you'll get the answer more quickly in terms of safety and whether or not they're effective. It's very expensive, but the resources have been made available and that's one of the reasons why I believe that we're going to break a record for this vaccine. The, the, the fastest vaccine to, to date has been Ebola. That took seven years. I do honestly believe that this is going to be much faster than that, but I don't think it's going to be less than a year because there's just some things you can't, you can't compress, right? Would you, would you expect that we'll see, this will be with us in the fall and winter? Oh, absolutely. No question about it. And that's going to be exacerbated by the fact that flu will be right. there as well. So that's gonna mean a couple of things. There's gonna be a higher demand for ICU beds, uh, higher demand for, for healthcare providers who know how to provide that kind of care. And one of the things that worries me, which is not out of the realm of possibility, is some individuals might get infected by both viruses. And that would be a really devastating thing to have to deal with. And that's why I think it's really important that we do as much as we can to keep the cases as low as possible and have strike teams that are available that as soon as we know that someone is positive, we do contact tracing, isolation, and take the steps from having that become a, a minor uh, you know, epidemic. Right. And so your, I think your ideas about focusing on nursing homes, um, jails, penitentiaries, and I, I think clearly there needs to be more done in the minority community because I think minorities have been hit harder. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Good. Well, um, Pat, do we have any questions that um, you have or others may we, have? We do, and, and uh, I'd, I'd like to pose a question while we uh, get a few more in the queue here. Uh, Dr. Hildreth, can you talk about the World Health Organization and the uh, implications for the fight against the pandemic? of the political jockeying uh, that we're seeing between the United States and China, uh, the, the threat to defund it if they don't change their ways, 
Uh, I understand that uh, the WHO is really the, the CDC to many countries that don't have their own. I think, uh, I think the latter point that you made is extraordinarily important. There are lots of countries, especially in the lower, lower hemisphere, that do not have CDCs. And the WHO is a really vital part of the solution for those countries. So I would hope that we find a solution to whatever differences there might be because keeping WHO funded is really important for the simple reason that this is a pandemic, a global epidemic, which means that not only are we all in this country in this together, all of us on the planet are in this together. And as soon as we start to be the small planet that we have been with international travel, there's a possibility that we'll find ourselves fighting this all over again. So it's really important from my perspective that WHO continue to do the work that they're doing. Clearly there are missteps that happen with WHO, but on the same hand, there are mishaps that happen with us in terms of our federal agencies as well. So I like to tell people that we're standing in a house that's on fire, the house is burning down. How about we put it out the fire before we start pointing fingers as to who left the stove on? That's my, that's my take. Let's deal with the problem and worry about pointing fingers later on. We have a question from uh, Rhonda Mitchell. She asked uh, about a recent report that uh, she didn't cite the report, but said that COVID-19 will be gone by November. How true is that? I think you, you answered that, but it, it leads to the question of some of these uh, misrepresentations that this is just gonna go away without uh, a, a medical solution. And her second question was, how helpful is it to wear masks and gloves? So the answer to the first question is, I can, all, I can tell you with almost complete certainty that the virus will still be with us in uh, November. And part of the reason is that there are some areas of our country that haven't even reached the peak of this first wave. And so we've got to see that play out. And if you witness the scenes that we saw this past weekend on Memorial Day, where there are large crowds gathering without gloves, without social distancing, those things will perpetuate the virus in our communities. And I'm, we're fairly certain, I think all of the experts agree that we're gonna be dealing with this virus, not just in the fall, but probably in 2021 as well. Even if a vaccine becomes available before the year is out, getting that vaccine distributed on such a wide scale is gonna take some time. So we're fairly confident that we'll be dealing with this in November. Uh, hopefully on a much smaller scale than we're dealing with it now, but it's pretty certain that we're still gonna be dealing with the virus. And in terms of the, the, the face coverings, I think it's still vitally important that we do that, uh, all of us do it. And one of the reasons for suggesting that is there are large numbers of individuals, or at least a reasonable number of individuals who are asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic with COVID-19. And during that stage of infection, they can still transmit the virus. But the beauty of wearing the face coverings is if all of us wear the face coverings, it does not matter which of us is carrying the virus, the transmission risk will be lowered for everyone. And so I think that's why it's really important to, to wear the face coverings. Gloves are fine, but probably more important than gloves is having everyone wash their hands many times during the day. The risk might be lower, as the CDC has said, but touching a contaminated surface and touching your eyes, nose, or mouth is a great way to transmit the virus or to inoculate yourself with the virus. Um, and so we think that washing hands is an essential part of any strategy to mitigate the virus. 
So face coverings and washing hands are both very, very important. Also on the, uh, the, the global scene, we've seen a number of different countries approach the problem differently. And you've expressed uh, your um, enthusiasm for, for keeping the numbers of infections low. But countries such as Sweden were in the news because they've uh, taken a different approach. Can you comment on some of the different differences we've seen in the ways different countries have tackled the problem? I think that part of the reason why countries approach this differently is that they have a different past experience in dealing with uh, pandemics. For example, South Korea was exemplary in their response. And I think that's because they had dealt with SARS in 20, 2003 and other countries that dealt with MERS in 2012. They understood the full potential of harm that these viruses can do. So they were quick to shut down the economy, make, have people stay at home, wear masks, and do those things that were needed. So for those countries that had not really had to deal with a pandemic in that way, where there was really a lot of harm done to the population, I think they took a more lax approach. Italy is a great example of that, where, as you all recall, uh, no one wore masks, people did not social distance, and the virus just decimated uh, Italy very quickly. Um, and so you have countries in between that. So I think that depending on the the history of the population of a country and how they dealt with pandemics in the past, that seemed to have a lot to do with how well they responded or not responded to, to uh, COVID-19. And one last question on, on my part. I, uh, I hear about the trials that are gonna be run uh, to test vaccines. I'm curious, half of the pool will be taking a placebo, so they, they would be not protected by the, uh, the vaccine. Uh, is the intention that everybody in the pool placebo or not gets exposed? Uh, I think the way that this would be designed is you won't purposely expose people to the virus. Obviously that would be unethical, but you take a group of people equally at risk of getting infected. One group you give the placebo, the other group you give the vaccine. You follow them over time and ask whether or not the risk of infection has been lowered for those who get the vaccine. You want to see a statistically significant lowering of risk in those who've gotten uh, the vaccine. And, and if it turns out that the vaccine is showing signs of working early on, you would of course stop the trial and give everybody the vaccine as soon as you know that it's working. But the design would be to take two groups of individuals equally at risk of infection and give one the placebo, one the vaccine, and follow them to see whether or not they become infected. Terrific, thanks. Uh, Carl, that's uh, the last of my questions. I'll have some closing comments, but if you and Dr. Hildreth want to uh, make some last uh, notes. Yeah. Well, let me just, uh, Doctor, let me thank you. It was a fascinating um, opportunity to talk with you. And uh, again, I think um, your message right now is, is right on target and, and your experiences are the ones that are relevant right now. You, this is what you do. And, and yeah. we're thankful that you're here, here in Nashville and you're doing a wonderful job at uh, Meharry and I wish you all the all the luck and um, again thank you for what you do for for everybody. Carl I appreciate that very much and uh, please stay safe and, and be well. Thank you. Okay. Thank you doctor and thanks everybody for uh, joining us today. Again uh, take a look at tnwac.org and consider becoming a member of the World Affairs Council. Just a couple of uh, notes about upcoming programs. On Thursday, uh, this Thursday at 2 p.m. Central Time, Nancy Lindborg, who's the president of the U.S. Institute of Peace, 
uh, will be on a webinar on the title of COVID and Conflict, Pandemics and Peace, The Road Ahead. Uh, Nancy Lindborg has been here as a guest speaker at the World Affairs Council uh, with us in Nashville, and she's a friend of the World Affairs Council. So she's going to be uh, talking about uh, the Institute of Peace and uh, the impact of pandemics there. Uh, let me also mention that on Thursday evening, uh, we have a new uh, concept we're rolling out, Global Trivia with Julian. Uh, it's a three-week tournament uh, every Thursday night for three weeks. You can test your global trivia uh, IQ. The winner will move on to a national title match with uh, winners from other World Affairs Councils around the country. Uh, please check uh, tnwac.org for uh, this and uh, more information about webinars uh, coming up and other programs. Again, uh, uh, Carl, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Hildreth, uh, thank you for joining us tonight. And to everybody who's uh, with us this evening and, uh, and those watching uh, on our uh, archive version, uh, please be safe. Good night. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, doctor. Thank you, Carl.